boy the last thing i want to do right now is do this fucking recording but i know if i don't even start it today there's no way now i'm starting it tomorrow so i gotta do something today i don't even know what what i want to add to it so far maybe i'll do um i'll start with like primary source document questions even though miss madalino literally has not gone over it yet but let's see i think i'll do that and then i'll go over my study guide can you tell how much I don't want to do this right now? <laughs> it's 10.50. Which, a TBH, that's not late at all. Um, I'm just exhausted. I don't want to do this shit anymore. So annoying. Okay, let's look at our daily agenda. Sorry, this is like kind of not prepped. Okay. So we started to debt. Nope. Still the French Rev. Okay. So, I have some Napoleon stuff. Yeah, I guess we'll do the primary and secondary sources because that's literally all we've done so far. Um, yeah, and then I think I have a picture that I can take of um, a little graph we're doing in class. So, you can do that. Hold on, let me look at my assignments. So, I think, okay, then this isn't going to be that bad. Um, age, Napoleon, primary and secondary sources. Okay, so let's open this up, and then I think I'll do my, um, my study guide, and then I'll wait till we're done going over all the um slides in class to, like, say what I've taken notes on so far. Okay, so for primary sources, it was actually quite easy. There's only six questions, so this will go by fairly fast, but the um, my study guide is fairly long, which I wasn't expecting it to be, but it's fucking five pages, so good luck, girl. Okay, so primary sources, memoirs, Napoleon's Appeal by Madame Remusat. Remusat? I don't even know. Briefly explain two reasons why Napoleon was so appealing to the French. Two reasons why Napoleon was so appealing to the French are because they felt he would save them from, quote-unquote, the perils of anarchy, and were overall worn out from the revolution, and wished for him to take over and secure their liberties won. The liberties they won, I mean? I don't know why I phrased it like that. Anyways, they felt that Bonaparte and his authority could help secure those values. Uh, Memoirs, Napoleon's Secret Police by Joseph Fouché, F-O-U-C-H-E, and the E has a little thingy on it. Anyways, briefly explain one reason why you think this document is credible and one reason why it may not be credible. I actually really liked answering this question. I believe that this document is credible because the author does not completely ignore the flaws in having a secret policing system, uh, referencing how expensive it is for the French economy. Such could make it seem as though Fouché has nothing to hide about his experiences. On the other hand, I find this source to be not be credible because he was the head of the police under Bonaparte. In such a high position and under such an authoritative, power-hungry ruler that regulated a lot of the media distributed, I would not be surprised if Bonaparte made Fouché switch around some facts in Bonaparte's favor period that's such a good response agreed if miss madalena disagrees i'm gonna be sad because like that's valid out anyways napoleon's diary briefly explain two reasons why napoleon believed he was successful napoleon believed oh yeah i have a chart hold on i'll read that chart too i forgot about that 
briefly explained two reasons why Napoleon believed he was successful. Napoleon believed he was successful because when, tra- he, when he traveled to Milan, there were men that recognized him without ever having known him, and he gained a reputation from his war victories. Having strangers moved by his sheer presence, which Bonaparte claimed, quote-unquote, would do anything for him, um, meant that his actions were making an impact. Additionally, having a reputation meant that he was well-known, and his legacy would live on after his death, making his efforts successful. Uh, these are from the secondary sources. Uh, this is Napoleon's The Authoritarian Statesman from Tim Blanning. Um, briefly explained two ways that Napoleon was statesmanlike. Napoleon was statesmanlike because he sought reconciliation and restoring order within the nation of France and made peace with the Catholic Church in 1802 with the Concordat. Miss said it's not pronounced Concordat, but I forget how she said it's actually pronounced. I'm going to keep calling it the Concordat. With these actions, Napoleon reconstructed the nation of France almost and improved the status of peace in the area. Girl, sometimes I phrase things so weird. Napoleon Bonaparte and the Legacy of the French Revolution by Martine Lyons Briefly explained two ways that Napoleon was not an enlightened despot, but more of a founder of the modern state. Napoleon was more of the founder of the modern state rather than an enlightened despot because he wished to rationalize the new regime rather than the old regime, and he wished to build institutions to establish new equalities and opportunities rather than to secure the social status of the aristocracy that was already there. In contrast, enlightened absolutists were more concerned with rationalizing the old regime and uplifting the prestige of the aristocracy. Period. That was a good response, too. Alright, Women and the Napoleonic Code by Bonnie G. Smith. Briefly explained two ways that the Napoleonic Code made women dependent on men. Two ways that the Napoleonic Code made women dependent on men include that they had no control over property and their entire relationship with the state came from their husband's relations. Husbands had administrative control over funds and properties. Additionally, women's nationality... Oh, okay, husbands had administrative control over funds and properties, not women... Um, additionally, women's nationality was granted upon her marriage to a man, making her entire relationship with the nation completely dependent on her husband. Oh, period. That's literally so gross. But are we surprised, though? Like, you can't tell me that you're surprised with that. You have to be kidding me. Women are always being put down F. Put down F. So fucking annoying. Okay, I'll read the Napoleon chart. Actually, I'll do this first, and then I'll do the Napoleon chart. This is going to be so fucking annoying. Okay, Age of Napoleon and Romanticism. I keep spelling Napoleon wrong. It's N-A-P-O-L-E-O-N. Okay, Napoleon Bonaparte. So we're going to get really into him with the chart I have. So this is just like the brief things that I have written for him. He favored the revolution, and he was a fiery Jacobin. Um, The Constitution of the Year... Eight V I I I O was government based on confidence from below and power from above. Um, it divided executive authority among three consuls at first, but then Bonaparte created this constitution that created the first consul, the sole ruler of one man, Bonaparte himself. There was also the consulate, which ended the French Revolution. Um, the third estate achieved um, the abolition of hereditary privilege and more careers opened up for them. Uh, peasants gained land they had wanted but couldn't get because of feudalism as well. 
Um, oh, in suppressing enemies, um, they made peace with French, um, French enemies were made peace with using generosity, flattery, and bribery, and they suppressed brutality through opposition. Um, they had a centralized administration, secret police, the stamped out rebellions, etc. Any royalist plots, no, Napoleon took down. Um, the Concordat with the Church gave Napoleon an agreement that required both the refractory clergy and those who accepted the revolution to resign. Um, the state named the new bishops rather than the church. Catholicism was declared the religion of the French great majority, and all bishops had to swear loyalty a loyalty oath to the state. The Napoleonic Code it basically solidified the revolution accomplishments. It safeguarded property and worker workers' organizations remained forbidden, and fathers were granted mass control over families and wives. All right. The Haitian Revolution. Um, the French colony of Haiti achieved independence in the late 1700s to, ver- to the very early 1800s. It was sparked by the French Revolution and demonstrated that slaves of Africa, African origin, could lead a revolt against their white masters. In 1791, the Haitian Revolution began officially, and slaves were extremely collaborative with one, the- one another, which was actually quite shocking that they were so successful because any talk of rebellion that anyone heard would have been would have sentenced them to death. Uh, Francois Dominique Toussaint L'Overture became the leader. Um, it was very violent. In 1793, um, France abolished slavery in Haiti. The French government was conspicuous of L'Overture, although and hoped that he would not undermine their power. Jean-Jacques de Salinas continued to resist. Um, This was the first successful slave rebellion in modern history, and Haitian independence additionally was officially recognized by France in 1804. Alright, we now have the Napoleon Empire. Um, It was a force of nationalism, military mobilization... Um, the Peace of Amiens between France and Britain was merely a truce. It reduced Austrian influence in France and German states uh, in the West grew more dependent on France. Um, the Battle of Trafalgar between France and British fleets resulted in France understanding that they would not be able to invade Britain and Britain would be able to maintain uh, opposition to France and remain dominant in the um, trade business, at least in the sea. Um, at Austerlitz, Napoleon defeated Austria and Russia. The Treaty of Pressburg that followed gave them major concessions from Austria, and Napoleon now controlled everything north of Rome and was recognized as the King of Italy. He organized the Confederation of the Rhine in Germany. He crushed Prussian army at Jena and Auerstadt, A-U-E-R-S-T-A-D-T, in 1806, um, to which I commented, you should have stayed neutral, Frederick, because Frederick the Great of Prussia just kept coming in, and he was relentless with it, but he kept facing so many losses, he just wanted France to go down, it just wasn't happening. Um, Napoleon issued the Berlin Decrees, um, that forbade allies from importing British goods, um, there was the Treaty of Tilsit between Prussia and France, where Prussia last half lost half of its territory. Um, 
and Prussia became an open ally with France, and Russia secretly did as well. Um, that's good to note. Uh, the French administration and powers were all family members of Napoleon, um, even in his French extensions, like in Italy. So it was all kind of hereditary now. Okay. Uh, the continental system. There were initial export drops, domestic unrest, and tensions about the ban, but British economy was resilient to the suppression of their goods in France. Um, other Euro- European econo- economies suffered, um, and Napoleon still refused to adopt free trade in his nation. All right. Um, now we have the European response. Oh my god, I really need to finish this because I don't want to do it. Okay, I will stop at Congress of Vienna. The European response. Um, Germany's was interesting. Um, there had never been a unified German state before Napoleon. Um, and nationalism emerged here where emphasis on German culture prevailed. And eventually they, they began to resist Napoleon because of their newfound nationalism, even though he kind of helped create it in the first place. They began to criticize the inefficient and lackluster princes of Germany as well, thanks to Napoleon, though. Uh, Prussia continued to resist feebly, and German nationalists fled here um, and called for reforms and unification. Although most Junkers Junkers opposed the reform, they knew the only way to survive was to change, um, especially following the results of the Battle of Jena. Uh... Stein and Hardenberg aimed to fight French powers with more French powers, but, like, their way, so the same form of, like, huge, skilled military, um, yeah. Ooh, you hear that? That was my neck. Um, eventually, um, in Prussia, the Junker monopoly of landholding was broken, serfdom was abolished, and... The military sought an increase in supplies and soldiers, and they also abolished inhumane Prussian military punishments. So that's how they reformed themselves to fight back to France. Uh, in Spain, at, there was heavy national resistance. Um, they were constant allies with one another, but France grew power-hungry and invaded them. Um, Guerrilla warfare emerged in Spain, which France had never seen before, which was unfortunate for them because they had been allies in the past. Um, Austria actually fought back because of France's conflicts with Spain. They were confident in their revenge plot and France being preoccupied with other things. So they were like, oh my god, they won't even see us coming. Ah, but they were defeated in the Battle of Wagram, where the Peace of Schönbrunn deprived Austria of territory and upwards of three million subjects were killed. Uh, also, um... As one of the quote-unquote war spoils from uh, the Battle of Wagram with Austria, um, the Archduchess Archduchess, um, Marie-Louise was sent over for Napoleon to marry and produce an heir because his previous wife could not produce an heir. So that's actually really disgusting that they sent over a woman as one of the war spoils because he won. Isn't that absolutely horrendous? fucking hate it here. Anyways, let's talk about the invasion of Russia. Um, Russia withdrew from the continental system in 1810 and plotted war against Napoleon, but Napoleon was superior in numbers. 
which is not a shock to us. Uh, although the morale of Napoleon's army was crushed after Russians burned all the food and supplies and kept retreating, but never stopped fighting, which I actually think was a pretty insane war tactic. Like, it was extremely effective, but obviously it did not hold that many benefits for um, Germany. Like, in the end, like, they burned down Moscow. But hey, anything to keep the French out, I guess. Uh, Russia, once again, was willing to sacrifice Moscow if that meant overall victory for them. The Russians burned Moscow and abandoned it, making the Frenchmen forced to leave. And Napoleon actually ended up losing five-sixths of his army. So, out of 600,000 soldiers, only 100,000 remained, approximately. Here we have the European coalition now. Um, the patriotic pressure and national ambition brought forth the European coalition. It consisted of Russia, Prussia, Austria. Uh, there was financial assistance from Britain. And the Spanish also marched their army into France. Um, Napoleon's newly formed army was inexperienced and poorly equipped. Once again, he didn't have enough time to form a perfect army because he'd lost so many in the fight with Austria. Um, it was a successful defeat of defeat. Wow, defeat of Napoleon at Leipzig, L E I P Z I G, uh, aka the Battle of the Nations. Um, and then after that, the armies marched into Paris in 1814, and Bonaparte was exiled onto the island of Elba thereafter. So due to a depletion in Bonaparte's military um, force, he was defeated. Uh, the Congress of Vienna. Um, before this Congress um, officially met, uh, the Bourbons were restored to the French throne, and the Quadruple Alliance of Britain, Austria, Russia, and Prussia was formed. Here at the Congress during 1814-1815, here's what was established. Uh, no state would dominate Europe. It strengthened the states around the French borders um, to essentially barricade the French expansion. Like the Kingdom of the Netherlands was erected and the Port of Genoa was established to kind of keep them secluded. Um, most of Napoleon's territorial alterations in Germany were left untouched, though, um, and, yeah, there was a rule of legitimate monarchs established, uh, as well. In Eastern Europe, uh, there was a different story, because Russia wanted Poland, but Prussia was, and Prussia was willing to give it up, but Austria was not, and I guess I never wrote how that ended. Um, yeah, okay, so, when I return here... Because I really can't push myself to do more than 20 minutes on this. I'm going to cry. Uh, I'll start out from the 100 days. And we'll talk about a few more things on my study guide. I'll read that chart to you. And I won't be in class. So like that's all I can do tomorrow is the chart in this. And then I'll maybe make a quizlet as well. But that's pretty much it for me today. Yeah. Okay. Good night. Hello! Okay, so I actually have some time today. It's 8.30, um, and I actually had, like, the whole afternoon to myself, so I took a fat nap. Oh my god, Bella has arrived. Hey! Um, so we're gonna start talking about the 100 days now. Oh, did I only read a page? Oh my god, I thought I only- Okay, so we got three pages left of my study guide to go through, um... We have a chart, I have a few other notes, um, and then I'll add more, 
um, as things come, but it's okay, though, um, yeah, so I'm also gonna start my Quizlet today, too, but that's alright, okay, so, the hundred days, so, Napoleon returned from his exile to the island of Elba in March of 1815. The Quadruple Alliance uh, declared him an outlaw thereafter upon his return to France. Um, Wellington defeated him at Waterloo with um, great Prussian assistance. Um, I forget who Wellington was, though, like where he was from. I don't know. We'll figure it out. Um, And... Napoleon was exiled once more to St. Helena and died in 1821. And basically, the Hundred Days was essentially the period in which Napoleon returned to France from his original exile. Um, the Quadruple Alliance grew fierce and worked with Christian principles to strengthen their force. Um, Britain, Austria, Prussia, and Russia renewed their Quadruple Alliance in October of 1815 to maintain peace and victory over France. Um, they were determined to prevent war, upheaval, and destruction in Europe, and they aimed to establish a framework for stability rather than to punish France. Um, Metternich of Austria, spelled M-E-T-T-E-R-N-I-C-H, aimed to prevent international war in preventing domestic revolutions, which let him lead cooperative conservatism systems, um which were soon to become the concert of Europe. Um, they were successful in establishing a new international order, um, which France did like this because their great power was recognized here. Um, so they kind of like were able to back down. Um, the treaties were now made between states rather than monarchs to emphasize their intent of peace. Um, with treaties rather than settlements um, between like, different lands and sectioning those off. Um, However, it did not provide for nationalism or democracy, though. Um, They dealt with present problems and ignored future possible predicaments. Um, And this alliance that happened following the 100 Days um, remained intact for a half a century and prevented general warfare in Europe for 100 years. Sorry, I needed to, um, drink. Okay, now we're on to romanticism, which you're kind of confused on, but it's okay. Um, hopefully reading this out loud and going to class tomorrow will help ease some of the, um, confusions. Okay, so romanticism. Um, the mid-18th, it was a reflection on the mid-18th century. It was an intellectual movement, and it was a reaction against the Enlightenment thoughts and social transformation of the Industrial Revolution. It essentially represented a turn toward absolute inwardness. Um, the artist was em- emphasized over their own work. Um, Thought imag- they thought that imagination was superior to reason when perceiving the world. Um, they urged Christianity revivals. Um, they liked art, literature, and architecture of medieval times. Um, folklore, folk songs, and fairy tales were also very popular in Romanticism works. Romanticism and reason. So they rooted 
it romanticism was rooted in 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 the individualism of the renaissance um protestant devotion and 18th century sentimental novels it rejected french rationalism on german literature jean jacques rousseau and emmanuel kant were like the main people that were involved in romanticism reason um so they essentially had this question of was rationalism sufficient to explain human nature and be the principal foundations for organizing human society here is a little burb on rousseau so rousseau viewed this perspective that society and material prosperity corrupted human nature his novel emile e-m-i-l-e stressed the difference between children and adults and the human maturity and how he urged children to be raised with individual freedoms um he said that trial and error determined true realities rather than it being presented on a silver platter in front of somebody um parents and teachers were told he encouraged parents and teachers to stay out of that um aside from teaching them necessities and outwardly harmful things where true reason comes from within and from the individual um and he also put the rights of nature over the rights of artificial society so he didn't want to implement any artificial teachings onto children here's a little thing about kant so he wrote the critique of pure reason and the critique of practical reason um he sought to accept rationalism of the enlightenment and preserve human freedom um he talked about immortality and the existence of god the sphere of reality accessible to pure reason was limited there was a noumenal world as well where pure reason existed meanwhile this world was practical reason of moral and aesthetic realities um it was a world of practical reason of moral and aesthetic realities um he believed in categorical in the categorical imperative the internal sense of moral duty slash awareness possessed by all humans and the human mind had power to go beyond limits of passive human understanding so they are constantly developing okay romantic literature so this was heavy in england and france and germany too um it was heavily imaginative we have henry bale of france it's spelled h-e-n-r-i-b-e-y-l-e um he was one of them and there was very um poetry um revolving in england um like with samuel taylor coleridge or coleridge um he was essentially the master of gothic poems in the supernatural like the rhyme of the ancient mariner which deals with curses and questioning punishment and redemption um william woodsworth or wordsworth was coleridge's closest friend and they published the lyrical ballads in the late 18th century together uh wordsworth alone published ode on intimidation yeah intimations of immortality in 1803 where he questioned the relations with nature and poetic vision weakness um they both believe childhood to be the bright period of imagination and creativity which kind of relates to um 
your cell basically being like you were molded as a child um and all that stuff um British Lord Byron was re- was a rebellious romantic poet and he rejected the old traditions and championed the cause of personal liberty. He mocked his own beliefs honestly and published The Child Harold's Pilgrimage, but child has an e at the end of it, with a melancholy romantic hero. Um Br- the British Mary Goodwin Shelley, which, fun fact, she is the daughter of Mary Wollstonecraft, uh, your favorite. Um, she conceived the idea behind Frankenstein and published it in 1818. It was the first science fiction novel of the time, um, or of in modern history, um, where basically Swiss doctor creates human beings of different dead human bodies. And he, um, yeah, and she was, because you know Frankenstein, you know. Um, she was criticized for creating something like this because she was female. You know, the constant, um, back and forth with females are inferior. Um, German Friedrich Schlegel, spelled S-C-H-L-E-G-E-L, wrote Lucinde, L-U-C-I-N-D-E, to attack women uh, to attack prejudice against women, sorry, to not attack women, to attack the prejudice on women, sorry, um, with shocking contemporary morals, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe wrote The Sorrows of Young Werther in 1774, which was a series of letters where essentially Werther falls in love with a married woman, kills himself in the end, um, which basically emphasized the feeling and living outside of bounds of polite society, where it was kind of this, like, not an affair, but, like, something you probably shouldn't do. Um, he also had a long poem called The Faust, where, um, the main character exchanged his soul with the devil for greater knowledge on human, on humans and humankind, and he eventually dedicates his whole life to improving mankind to overcome um, the striking, what was I trying to write? Um, the impulse that made him make a pact with the devil and breaking that pact, um, he actually breaks that pact by dedicating his whole life to improving mankind. Um, and he dies, but he is received by angels. So it's kind of a like redemption arc type thing. Okay, romantic art. It portrayed medieval life scenes. Um, it represented social stability as well and religious reverence. Um, that was disappearing from their own their own era. So it was kind of trying to like revive all this stuff. Um, John Constables had the Salisbury Cathedral from the Meadows, where. Um, there is a church picture that remained untouched by politics and industry. Um, he viewed the church and the British constitution as related and intertwined with one another. He idealized rural life because it opposed increasing industry and commercialization of the nation. Um, there was a lot of neo-Gothic revival in architecture in general with romantic art. Um, medieval buildings were reestablished, and even aristocratic buildings resembled medieval castles instead. Um, they were drawn toward the mystery and unruly side of nature, 
or the sublime. Um, and I put in parentheses, um, any subject from nature that arouses strong emotions like fear, dread, and awe. Um, they question their own control over our lives. Um, there was a lot of portraying dangerous nature scenes from in real life, like German, the German Caspar David Friedrich made the polar sea painting of the plight of a ship trapped and crushed by a vast polar ice field. Um, there was a lot of painting humans literally in the dark. Um, Joseph Mallard William Turner painted rain, steam, and speed. Uh, the Great Western Railway to illustrate railway engines going through a storm where essentially the new technology in the natural world was strong enough to dominate the natural world. Okay. Romanticism and religion. Um, They sought foundations of religion and inner emotions of humankind. They saw faith in institutions as central to human life. Methodism kind of replaced deism here. We talked a lot about deism in the Enlightenment period. Now it's switched to Methodism, which is quite literally the opposite of deism. Or maybe not the opposite, but um, it definitely contradicts it. And the Methodists did not like deists. Um, it was essentially mid-18th century um, establishment that revolted against deism and rationalism in England. And it was led by John Wesley... And he was inspired by German Moravians, Moravians, and having unshakable faith during, like, a storm. And they were, like, fighting continuously for their nation. And he was like, wow, you have so much faith and courage in yourself. Some other godly power must be controlling you. Or have giving you this faith right now. Um... He, the Methodist stressed inward, heartfelt religion and possibility of Christian perfection in life. Viscount Francois-René de Chateaubriand, Chateaubriand, uh, spelled C-H-A-T-E-A-U-B-R-I-A-N-D, wrote The Genius of Christianity, um, which was practically like the Bible of Romanticism, um, and claimed that essence, the essence of religion is passion. And he found that God was imminent in nature. Frederick Schleiermacher, spelled C-H-S-C-H-L-E-I-E-R-M-A-C-H-E-R, wrote the speeches on religion to its cultured despiser, where religion was um, claimed to be an institution or feeling of absolute dependence on infinite reality. All right, the last section of the study guide is Romanticism and Nationalism uh, slash history. Um, Big in Germany. They basically glorified individuals and individual cultures here. Um, There was herder and culture, which were really... um, Oh, there was not herder and culture. Someone who focused on the culture heavily was Johann Gottfried Herder where he viewed human beings and societies as developing organically like plants over time. He rejected colonialism and published On the Knowing and Feelings of the Human Soul. He revived German folk culture in urging a collection and preservation of distinct German songs and sayings. The Grimm brothers followed suit in their fairy tales. Um, so, like, yeah, they, they, the Grimm brothers followed suit in herders um 
advice, I guess you'd call that. Um, George Wilhelm, oh, oopsies, there's another thing about, like, romanticism and nationalism slash history. Um, they did not like to establish a common language because it takes away from individualism, they felt like. Um, like, how are you going to institute one main language when all these other people have their own languages? Um, now we have George Wilhelm Friedrich Kegel, a philosopher of romanticism. Um, he claimed that there's always a dominant idea, the thesis, and conflicting ideas, the antithesis. They clash and out emerges a synthesis that becomes the new thesis. This is the pattern evident in history, and all periods of history are of equal value because the achievements that came of those were necessary to following events that happen later. All cultures are valuable as well because they contribute to the necessary clash of values and ideas that allows humans to develop. Um, understanding The understanding of Islam in the Arab world increased as well. Um, for some saw the conflict as necessary under that sentiment of Hegel. Um, others viewed it as one's individual emotional right to religion. Um, medieval crusades against Islam fired the romantic imagination. Painters painted scenes of crusades to view Ottomans more negatively. Others induced a more sensible perception on Muslims where Herder and Hegel's views on history held helped create distinct roles of Arab people in history. Napoleon himself aimed to reshape the idea of Islam where the study of um, the Arab world induced after the in, had induced after the Egyptian expedition. The Rosetta Stone was discovered as well and helped decipher Egyptian hieroglyphics and therefore influenced the adaptations of different cultures in Europe. Um, therefore, it subsequently increased European visitors to the Middle East and demanded that architecture were to be based on ancient Egyptian models and therefore culture and European nations would advance thereafter. Okay, so we have finished the study guide, and now I have a few charts for you. I think I have around two. I'm going to take a quick swig of water. Um, I know I have a few charts, but I also have um, a few, what would you even call them, like readings, but we haven't gone over them yet, so... I'm not going to do them yet. Okay. Yeah. No, I will wait. So we haven't gone over this one. Sorry, this is like your little break. Okay, we did the primary and secondary sources. Um, okay, I'll go. Actually, I'll brief this page really fast. Do this. Do this. And is that it? No, there's more hiding in here. Oh, I'll go over the seventh coalition even though... Yeah, I'll do this as well. So I'm going to do one of these pages that uh, we haven't gone over yet. Um, but I kind of want to just because like, I don't know, I feel like I need to. Okay, so we're going to take a quick look at rethinking Napoleon's roots. Um, just to get a better idea on Napoleon. Um, this is one of the things that we've already gone over in class. I'll tell you when it's the one that we haven't gone over in case I need to, like, add something. Okay. <sighs> so, uh, 
a lot of what Napoleon did as um a former he he was of course he is a Corsican. Um he was very influenced by his family, like especially his dad. Um his father, Carlo Buonaparte, was probably secretary to and one of the most trusted associates of Pascal Poali, the democratically elected leader of the unrecognized Corsican Republic. Um, so having um, a federal secretary in the family being so close to him um, definitely induced his ways of thinking and um, in learning about um, how to run a government. Um, yeah. The principal weapon of the Corsicans was their courage. So Napoleon, obviously, you can see in a lot of his wars that he took a lot of risks and always had a lot of courage and faith in his armies. Um, yeah. And also, Napoleon kind of reminds me of how Louis Fourteenth turned to be so absolutist-driven. Um, um, because he grew up around those ideals, just like how Napoleon did. Um... Yeah, so there was that. Um, yep. Okay. Now we're gonna talk about the. Oh no, I'll do this. We did a gallery walk, so I'm gonna tell you about um, a bunch of different things from Napoleon stuff before I get into the seven coalitions, and then we will look at some of my notes just a few okay so only like three more things to get through that's really not that bad okay so first we had the little corsican we learned that napoleon was a noble from Cors- corsica he had seven siblings he was inducted into the french military academy at nine years old and at 16 he joined the french army Fun fact, he was also five foot two, so he was packing in a real hot punch with his height. Um, so that's how he started. And then he turned into the little corporal. Um, he got his fame and praise um, from lifting a British siege um, in Toulon and putting down national convention revolts. He became the commander of the French army. Um, he eventually had held a fleet to Egypt um with his expedition there but then he ended up leaving his men there so he had a lot of courage in the beginning but then decided ultimately to leave his people there um and at this point the Rosetta Stone was found um during the little corporal era which we already um alluded to but yeah um so by the way when he left his people in Egypt his reputation was saved because he returned before any word got back so he kind of got to like suppress it a little bit all right um the first consul of France here's kind of like the pretext of like what was going on in France at this time um so there was hella poverty destruction and they were corrupted entirely the nation was stricken with all these stuff Um, so Napoleon eventually overthrew the directory in 1799 and became the first consul. He restructured the armies and defense of France. Um, with this, the second coalition was formed against France 
and it consisted of Austria, Prussia, Russia, and Britain. Um, the march across the Alps occurred where Austria was defeated. Um, the Treaty of Amiens was created between Britain and France, where it was, I believe this was a peace treaty. Um, and the coalition, the second coalition was destroyed, and France was essentially at peace with the world at this point. Um, but then Napoleon, of course, could not get enough, as always. Uh, we see this quite often. He just keeps taking and taking. All right. So, in 1804, began the Fragile Empire era. Um, Napoleon crowned himself emperor in 1804. Um, He also established the Napoleonic Code, or the Civil Code, in the same year, which essentially secured the gains of the middle class and peasants um, from the French Revolution um, and disadvantaged women further. Um, he tried to invade England, but his fleet was destroyed in the third coalition, um, that consisted of Britain, Austria, and Russia, um, actually ended up failing. Um, anyways, the Continental System was established in 1807, essentially for an attack on any British vessels, um, that came in sight of France, um, but Britain wouldn't suffer, though, because they were the best world producers and controlled all trade. Um, in 1810, France faced the peak of its empire, but it soon fell, once again, because Napoleon was greedy off and he did not give a fuck. So, then we have the downfall So the continental system backfired, and the ban on British goods equaled a French economic instability period. Because how are you not going to import any of the goods that are literally making your prices so- Oh my god. So stupid. Um, Napoleon actually blamed Russia for this, attacked Russia, lost half of its army, and then returned home again without them, because Napoleon's a fucking dunce. Anyways, then- Austria, Britain, Russia, Prussia, Sweden, and Sweden allied against him, which, what coalition was this? That was a lot. Um, (laughs) I think this was the fifth coalition. No. Okay. Anyways, um, then we had the second attempt at the throne. Um, oh, 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 sorry. The downfall, um, Austria, Britain, Russia, Prussia, and Sweden allied against France and actually got him out and was successful in, um, oh, it was the sixth coalition. The sixth coalition got Napoleon out. All right, and then here was his second attempt at the throne. In 1815, he escaped from Elba, which was the island he was sent to. He returned to power in France and ruled for the Hundred Days, but then he was imprisoned at the St. Helena Island and died in 1821. Here was the restoration of Europe that followed after. Feudalism was destroyed, religious freedom was promoted, and Napoleonic Code um, was established in all conquered countries. Um... 
French Revolution ideas actually spread and started the global revolts, um, which you could kind of see in the slave rebellions in Haiti. Um, the Congress of Vienna was uh, occurred and helped reestablish monarchical kingdoms as well. Yay! There's our chart number one. Okay. And now we have the coalitions. Okay. So we have seven coalitions. Um, it's good to keep in mind that the wars of this period were really about other nations of Europe trying to overthrow the first of to overthrow the French Revolution first and then Napoleon. Okay. So the first coalition occurred from 1792 to 1797. It consisted of Austria, Great Britain, Spain, and Prussia. You're going to see Austria, Great Britain, and um, Germany in here a lot. And Prussia, I think, too. Um, th- um, they were varied being in and out of this coalition. And this coalition was against the revolutionary France. Um, it ended up collapsing with Napoleon's success in Italy. That led to the Treaty of Cambo Formio, Campo Formio, <clears throat> which I believe just essentially um, nullified the coalition. Um, and the most important battle of this was the Battle of Lodi, which I'm assuming Napoleon won. The second coalition from 1799 to 1802 um, included Austria. Britain and Russia. So once again, we have Austria and Britain, and now we're including Russia. Um, they formed because they were unhappy with the French expansion. Um, so this was during Napoleon's Egyptian excursion. Um, then once he established modern Egyptology. He took control of France as the first consul in 1799. Um, He campaigned in Italy against the Austrians, um, as highlighted by the Battle of Marengo, which I believe he also won. So there was like the attack against the Second Coalition, which I think he was successful in. Um, The Third Coalition was in 1805, um, and it only lasted... Um, maybe not even a year, maybe like just a few months or maybe a year around there. Um, Brit, oh, sorry, Austria and Britain and Russia form formed the third coalition again. So these are the same ones in the second coalition. Once again, seeing Austria and Britain too, ever since the beginning, once again, they were fearful of an expanding France. Um, but Austria and Russia actually faced really bad a really bad defeat at the Battle of Austerlitz. Um, and then the treaty that followed that ended hostilities between them, but only for a short time. Then came the Fourth Coalition, um, which consisted of Britain once again, Russia once again, and now Prussia is here. So, so far we've got Britain in all of the coalitions. Um, however, the Prussians deciding to jump in was not 
really a good idea. Uh, because the Prussians and Russians were defeated as fuck in the Battle of Friedland. Um, and then it kind of effectively ended the hostilities. I think at this point, um, the secret alliance between France and Russia had occurred. All right. Then we have the Fifth Coalition in 1809. Once again, the, um... Austrians and the British um, formed the Fifth Coalition, and Britain is like the only one that's been in literally all of these so far. Um, and once again, Austria is brought back in, but they just weren't in the Fourth Coalition. Um, they tr- wanted to throw Napoleon out of France. Um, essentially, this desire was influenced by Napoleon's growing power and constant expansion and inability to stop. Um, once again, Napoleon defeated the Austrians at the Battle of Wagram, but listen, the Britons, the Britons, the Brits were getting active in Spain, um, and they were gonna collab, basically, and be like, hey, let's take out Napoleon. So yeah, anyways, the Sixth Coalition occurred from 1812 to 1814, um, Yes, this makes sense, because Russia betrayed Napoleon at this point, so they already had their secret um, alliance between another, but then they didn't. Um, so I think this only has to do with Russia being a part of the Sixth Coalition. Um, and so Napoleon invaded Russia and was victorious at Borodino. Um... Oh, no, it wasn't just Napoleon. I mean, it wasn't just Russia. So after withdrawing from Russia, essentially, one by one, all of his former allies, all of his allies became former allies and joined to become members of the Sixth Coalition. Um, he was defeated at the Battle of Leipzig, L-E-I-P-Z-I-G, um, and that essentially sealed his fate. And in 1814, he was exiled from France as the Emperor of Elba, the island. And now we have the final coalition, the Seventh Coalition. Um, this was Napoleon's return to France in 1815 to try and become emperor again, which caused all of his old enemies to unite against him with a final defeat at Waterloo, which I believe, I know Austria and Prussia were at this, probably Britain, probably Russia, you know. Um, And that was it for Napoleon, who was exiled to the island of St. Helena and died on May 5th of 1821. R.I.P. I guess. Okay, so now let me get down some little notes for you. So, yeah, let's just go over. This is like the um, the lecture, but we haven't finished it yet. So a little bit about Napoleon. Um, he was Corsican, as we know. He went to the French Military Academy, which we know. He was heavy on revolution rhetoric. His victories in Toulon against Britain, his Italian campaign against Austria and Italy, and his Egyptian campaign against the Ottomans um, enhanced his early reputation, and he was the emperor in 1804. 
Um, here's a little bit about the directory. It was weak and vulnerable, and Bonaparte issued a plan to take over the Constitution of the Year VIII, or 8, um, was established, which we kind of talked about a little bit yesterday, where there was a one-man rule, the first consul of the consulate government, uh, aka a military dictatorship, um, and we know that Bonaparte became the first consul. The coup d'etat um, organi- was organized by Bonaparte, and he was able to establish such a consulate government with the coup d'etat. Um, also, a plebiscite kind of reminds me of gerrymandering from AP Gov. Um, basically, um, Napoleon is a plebiscite where he took on a title, the title of emperor, and was basically like, okay, guys, you're chill with this, right? Let's all take a vote, but, like, the voting is rigged. Um, it, like, he's gonna win anyways. All right, and then we have Jacques-Louis David again. Um, who was a neoclassicism artist from France. He painted for Bonaparte often. Um, yeah. Now, let's talk about how Napoleon was even able to become the emperor of France. First of all, his character. He was energetic, ambitious, and brilliant. Uh, second of all, he had hella military skills. He was one of the greatest generals of all time, um, historically, uh, apparently, people say that. Um, he inspired his soldiers, and he had great victories. Um, so the French people really were like, wow, you are going to do us many a great deed if you rule over us. Um, and also, Frenchmen had a strong desire for order at this time when he became emperor. Um, basically, they felt he was an answer to the people's tiredness with the revolutionary disorder and wanted a government that protected their spoils. And that's basically all I have for you today. I feel like I should have more, but I don't. This is only like 50, an hour, 50 minutes, an hour long. Oh, well. I mean, I gotta do a quiz now, so that's fine. But I'm just like confused. I'm sure I'll have more um, come the weekend time, but hopefully this will be done by Sunday. So you can listen to this all the way through. And then when you have work on Tuesday, you'll be able to do all that stuff. And it'll be great. Okay, bye. Hello. So I have... Um, a few more things to go over in this podcast. Uh, just a smidgen, though. It's not too bad. Um, let me just find everything. Yeah, we have a little bit of these. I'll go over these ones. You have Napoleon's brain. Sorry, I'm trying to get everything back into place. Yes, I need to go over this. Oopsies. Drop something on the desk. Where did it go? I don't want to run over it. Oh, here it is. Got a little accent going on. Anyways, I believe that's it. Okay. Um, let's start with just going over a little bit of something from um the lecture again because I had class again today, and we just went over whew, Napoleon's domestic policies uh, a little bit more. That doesn't have to do with his civil code, the policing system, the concordat with the church, and his um, suppression of newspapers. Um, wow, I just came up with that off the top of my head. I'm so proud of myself for, like, knowing. Anyways, okay, so his domestic policies, aside from the four that I just listed, included having a strong bureaucracy. Like, he learned how to perfect managing um, all the debts. Um, 
He increased public education, like he um, instituted primary levels in colleges and improved, yeah. And then he improved finances overall. He created the Central Bank of France. Um, there was extensive public work done. So like roads and bridges were established or improved. Uh, there of course was the Napoleonic Code, which um, basically the biggest things that you need to worry about from the Napoleonic Code was that there were no longer any serfs, so serfdom was abolished and feudalism was abolished as well. And property was secured um, thereafter. The Concordat with the church um, essentially made peace with the church and the state. Jews and Protestants were free and Catholicism ruled over France, basically. And not like actually ruled, but like that was like the majority um, religion in France. That was what was decided. There was a Legion of Honor established as well, which basically was like a merit system where... Um, you were recognized for excellent civil and or military conduct conduct and it was open to all classes as long as you were good enough yeah um <sighs> okay so i don't have that many other things um we do need to go through the civil codes we don't need to go through this um, or this, or this. Um, we went over this yesterday, thank God. Went over this yesterday. Um, five biggest lessons we went over. Oh, I can pull up something on Canvas, though. I think I'll do that about the final point of course. Um, oh, wait. Oh, yes. Okay. Go over this as well. And here. So... Let me just start off by talking about um, the Romantic movement a little bit. I know we're getting somewhat sidetracked, but it needs to be said. Um, a lot of this we talked about yesterday in um, this podcast, and it's also highlighted in your quizlet. So you really need to focus on, these are the Romantic um, authors of the time. Um, William Wordsworth, Lord Byron. Mary Godwin Shelley and Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, which we did talk about, so I will not say anything more about them right now. Um, and then the romantic artists included John Constable, Caspar David Friedrich, Joseph M. V. M. W. Turner, and Eugene Delacroix, which you did not know anything about Eugene, and I don't even know if he's brought up in the textbook, because I feel like you read that pretty thoroughly and you would have noticed another name, but you wrote about him a little bit in your quizlet anyway, so it's fine. Um, yeah, okay. So, let's talk about the Wars of Napoleon, which we went over today. So, we're going to start with the first war from 1805. It was the Battle of Trafalgar, um, and it was Britain versus France. The reason for this war was that Britain feared um, France's presence, um, and the French presence in the Dominican Republic, and Switzerland, and Italy, and German states especially frightened British, the British, so they wanted them out. Um, this battle occurred off the coast of southwestern Spain, SW Spain, 
anyways the outcome essentially essentially was that um the british defeated the spanish in the front because apparently the F- spanish was kind of allied with france at this point um lord nelson of britain was the one to um bring them down um and essentially it destroyed the french's hope of them ever being able to invade britain and as a result britain ended up dominating the seas for about a hundred years um and it also kind of showed the french that britain can fight a war and maintain their economy with no issue no matter how strong your forces are all right then we have in 1805 again the battle of austerlitz um which was austria and Russia against France, but they, Austria and Russia, were also kind of funded by Britain, and they were funded and persuaded to ally against France by Britain as well. Um, it's also important to note that if Britain wasn't the one fighting, they were paying others to, because they really wanted France out. They were not a fan of their invasions, they were not a fan of their expansion of um, properties, and they wanted to maintain control. So, the Battle of Austerlitz was fought in the present-day Czech Republic, um, and this battle was also known as the Battle of the Three Emperors. So, the Austrian Emperor, the Russian Emperor, and the French Emperor. As a result, um, the French troops defeated Austria and Russia. Um, So, the Battle of Trafalgar was a loss for France, but... The Battle of Austerlitz was a huge win for France. Um, Essentially, the Holy Roman Empire was dissolved and the Confederation of the Rhine was enacted in its place, where essentially 16 German client states of the French Empire were established. And they, the Russians actually had to end up lending 63,000 troops to France. Um, And, oh, I found the military. Miss Madalena said that there was um a typo in her graph, and I just found it. She wrote military instead of military, which I think is hilarious. Anyways, um, so there was a military alliance against Austria and Prussia now with Germany and France. Um, so yeah. Basically, Trafalgar was a major loss for France, but Austerlitz was a major win for France. Then we had in 1807 the Battle of Friedland in Eastern Prussia, and it was Britain, Russia, and Prussia versus France. So Britain and Russia were at war with France, and Prussia joins eventually. There isn't necessarily a reason given here. Aside from the fact, I think that Britain and Russia were already at war with France, and then Prussia was like, hey, let me get a piece. Um, but then uh, the French defeat the Prussians and the Russians. So this was, once again, the Battle of Friedland was another successful win for France. Um, and the Treaty of Tilsit results, which is a really important treaty. Listen up here, okay? So with this treaty... Prussia lost half of its territory, and its army was reduced to 43,000 men. And 120 million francs in war debt. So, 
They're experiencing debt. They're experiencing loss. Their land was ripped from them. Their army was ripped from them. All that. And additionally, Russia lost 40% of their troops. And they were forced to become a French ally. And they lost some of their islands. So they lost territory. They lost men. And they lost their dignity by becoming a French ally with the Treaty of Tilsit that resulted from the War of Friedland. Wonderful. Another French win. Then in 1807, the same year, we had the Battle of Wagram, um, which was once again a war between Austria and France, essentially. So this um, occurred near Vienna in Austria. And this was yet again another French victory against Austria. Austria and Prussia get like pummeled in the Napoleonic Wars, yet somehow, well, not somehow, we know how, uh, Napoleon reigns victorious at some points and then loses. So, as a result of the Battle of Wagram, the Treaty of Schönbrunn results, and remind you, Schönbrunn is the palace in Austria. Um, essentially, Austria loses the trace and Croatia, um, which meant that the access to the Adriatic Sea went to France instead. Um, they were in immense, uh, France was in immense war debt, I believe. And the army was reduced to 150,000, which I think was Austria's army was reduced. Um, and it's kind of like a war spoil. This is where Napoleon kind of gets, um, like, a marriage. He does get one. Um, from the Austrian Emperor Francis I. It's his daughter, Marie-Louise. Goddamn. Okay. And then, so that, the Battle of Wagram, the bottle, well, the Battle of Wagram was a huge win for France. Then from 1808 to 1814, we have the Peninsular War, um, where the French and Spanish armies were at first together invading Portugal, and then France turned against Spain. Um, and... Yeah, so this war was essentially Spain and Britain versus France. Um, the Peninsular War happened at the Iberian Peninsula and in southern France. Um, so, like I said, France and Spain invaded Portugal together because Napoleon wanted the naval fleet. The French turned on Spain. Um, And as a result of that, though, Napoleon's brother Joseph is actually given the Spanish throne. Um, oh, wow. The Spanish used guerrilla warfare against France and British forces under the Commander Wellington. Remember how it was like, I don't know who Wellington is. He is British. Commander Wellington helped Spain. And as a result, this was a loss for France. And they were first de they were defeated for the first time since 1805. Um, so Spain, Britain, and Portugal defeated France. Then in 1812, we have the invasion of Russia. Um, this was between Russia and France only, I believe. Um, essentially, Russia was angry over Napoleon's Austrian marriage. 
um, between Mary Louise, Marie Louise, is that who I said? Yeah, Marie Louise. Um, and France also annexed Holland, which violated the Treaty of Tilsit. Um, and essentially Russia withdrew from the continental system as a result. Um, and the outcome of this war was, well, during the war, Russia used a scorched earth policy and they defeated the French at Borodino and the Grand Army of France retreats and France loses 500,000 men from their 600,000 soldier unit. Um, the Tsar of France, of whoa, the Tsar of Russia refused to accept any peace deals. They were sick of it. They were willing to sacrifice Moscow for the sake of their nation. And they were like, fuck you guys. I'm going to let the environment take over, kill you all. And you know what? It worked. So this was a failure for France. Then in 1813, we have the Battle of Leipzig, L-E-I-P-Z-I-G. Um, where it was Austria, Russia, and Prussia, funded by Britain and Spain, driving westward to attack France from the east. So it was Russia, Austria, and Prussia, funded by Britain and Spain, against France. So France has no allies here. Um, the Battle of Leipzig, aka the Battle of Nations, occurred in Saxony, Germany as well. Uh, as a result, Napoleon was outnumbered and lost against the coalition. He had about half as many people as the coalition did. He had 185,000, while the coalition had 320,000. And Napoleon was exiled to Elba. So the Battle of Leipzig was a loss for France. And finally, we have the Battle of Waterloo in Belgium. Um, this is when France, aka just Napoleon, uh, returns to France and led an offensive attack against Britain. So he tries to attack England to kind of get back at them um, and to destroy them before any other troops like Prussia came in to help. But luckily, um, Prussia arrives just in the nick of time and is able to get them out. So, um, Wellington of Britain and all the Prussian forces, um, defeated Napoleon. So this war was essentially Britain and Prussia versus France. Um, and Wellington kind of felt that this was a narrow victory. So like, it wasn't all that, um, ensured at first that they were going to win, but then Napoleon is exiled to St. Helena and dies there in 1821. Uh, now, you may be thinking, how the fuck did England remain so untouched this whole time? Now, I know we touched upon this a little bit with their finances and their system of credit rather than taking actual revenues and having a stable economy the whole time and being able to, like, uphold their soldiers without much issue. Um, but they also had, yes, sorry. Sorry, I'm recording my podcast for a euro. Oh, it's okay. Bye. Anyways, so you may be wondering why um, England had so much of an advantage aside from just having a really superior economy. They also had a superior navy. 
and they were on an island. So not only were they kind of indestructible on the battlefront when... What the fuck am I saying? Not only were they superior on the Navy front, but they were also on an island, so you couldn't get to them without using water. Um, let's talk about Napoleon's army, though, and how they managed to survive so many um, defeats and still maintain themselves. So Napoleon essentially organized, reorganized the military system to a corp system, um, which essentially created independent smaller armies. Um, and they essentially, all these little French armies moved to separate armies and could wage war at the same time in different places. So they were like, although they separated like the powers individually, they were still forceful enough to have impact elsewhere. Um, he also hired skilled marshals upon merit rather than marshals just born into the position as a noble like other nations had done. So they actually were very skilled and knew what to do in action. They also had mobile field guns um, while the opponents had stationary guns and armory. Um, Napoleon also had an armament industry where uh, confiscated church um, and lands by the French government, uh, now turned into war factories, um, and the manpower was kind of at um, Napoleon's disposal this way. Um, He also accumulated a range of specialists, so when he conquered other countries, Napoleon took soldiers from them, and he recruited them as he was conquering. He would recruit all these really skilled, masterful people to work for him now, Um, He also had a multinational army, which kind of ties into the range of specialists idea. Um, Yeah, he had an imperial guard filled with elite veteran um, peoples like Italians, Swiss, Germans, and Egyptians. And yeah, so themes in the Napoleonic Wars include that England was undefeated and France was constantly dominating the Holy Roman Empire, Austria, and Prussia. And France's armies still tried to um, push back, and they were relentless in their fightings. Okay, so now we're going to talk a little bit about the five biggest lessons. Oh shit, I forgot about this too. We'll get back to the five biggest lessons in the Napoleonic Wars in a second, because I did a little thing in class today. So we'll talk about that later. Um, But for now, we're going to discuss the French Civil Code um, in 1804, which was essentially um, Napoleonic Code. Um, It composed of 36 laws, 2,281 articles, and it was arranged in three parts, um, uh, talking about people, goods, and property. The civil code was essentially a body of laws designated to direct and fix social, familial, and commercial relations between men of the same society. Um, These laws reimposed the superiority of the husband and father in the family context. Women were under the control of their husbands. They were not even permitted to exercise freely the profession of their choice. Um, The only people who could be French were those whose fathers were French also. So one's nationality came from the father. 
doesn't matter if your mother was French. Um, but the this Napoleonic Code overall swept away the feudal traditions, um, which we kind of alluded to a little bit prior to this. Um, and it fixed in people's minds the ideas such as fundamental rights and duties of man, equality, citizenship, freedom of conscience and expression, and the protection of property. Now, here are some of the actual laws that um, were discussed in the Civil Code. So, every French man is to enjoy civil rights. That was from Article 8. Um, from Article 212, the husband owes protection to his wife, and the wife owes obedience to her husband. In Article 213, it is stated that the wife is obliged to live with her husband, and the husband is obliged to receive her and to furnish her with everything necessary for the wants of life according to his means and station. A wife cannot plead in her own name without the authority of her husband, as according to Article 214. According to Article 545, no one can be compelled to give up his property except for the public good and for a just and previous indemnity. So here we can see that civil rights were emphasized, subjugating women is emphasized, and um, emphasizing the rights of property is emphasized as well. All right, the state versus the church. So there was a constant conflict between Napoleon and the Pope. Essentially, we'll get into this a little, a little later, but Napoleon was like, the church is taking away from my power. I don't want another head of the state in power if you're not working for the state or for the people or for me. Um, so, but he did actually want to bring back religion into France. Um, he said that the spiritual head of the church can be the Holy Father, but political matters, notably Italian matters, were only under Napoleon's control. Um, he stated, you are sovereign in Rome, but I am its emperor. Um, yep. The conflict between Napoleon and the church was to escalate seriously. Um, after Napoleon appropriated Papal lands, um, he essentially decreed that the Papal territories of Urbino, Ancona, Margareta, and Camerino were irrevocably part of his kingdom in Italy. Um, and he essentially published a decree that annexed Rome to the Grand Empire in 1809. Now let me keep going. Um, Hi, Bella. So, yeah. The Concordat released in what's an agreement between the Pope and Napoleon. Um, Napoleon, here's the conflicts he found in the church. Um, he said that it is axiomatic that Christianity, even the reformed kind, destroys the unity of the state because it is capable of weakening as well as inspiring the trust which the people owe to the representatives of, of the law, and Christianity contains a separate body, which not only claims a share of the citizens' loyalty, but is able even to counteract the aims of the government. And besides, is it not true that the body, aka the clergy, is independent of the state? 
So therefore, the loyalties of the people of the state should only lay in Napoleon, according to Napoleon. Ew, Bella, you're so dirty and dusty. You're so dusty. You got out of my leggings. All right. Here's a Napoleon. What? Here's the agreement that essentially arose between Napoleon and the Pope. So the French Republic recognizes um, that the Roman Catholic and apostolic apostolic religion is the religion of the great majority of French citizens. And likewise, the Pope recognized that this religion expects the greatest benefit and grandeur from the establishment of the Catholic worship in France. Um, All worship shall be public. There shall be a new division of dioceses in the old titular bishops. Oh, and the old titular bishops are to resign their sees at the request of the Pope. The new bishops will be named by the First Council, um, and the Pope will confer the usual canonical institutions. Bishops should take directly um, an oath of fidelity. Yeah, and essentially... They have to take an oath, like being like, if I hear anything derogative that, that about the government, then I will make it known to the government. And you see, we let them know and be more informants. And those informants kind of lead us into the discussion of Napoleon's police, um, aka the gendarmes or the gendarmerie, which actually became a model for the police forces throughout Europe. Um, it was an administrative police. Um, and a civilian force led essentially, uh, mostly by Joseph Fouché. Um, it was a parliamentary force, and it policed the countryside. It was elite, and they had to be former non-commissioned officers in the regular army with several years of service and a clean disciplinary record. They should be literate and numerate roughly six feet tall, um, but it is often impossible to meet all these requirements, so they did the best they could. To ensure their loyalty to the regime and their impartiality to local affairs, the gendarmerie should stand apart from the communities in which it served. Um, gendarmes, including their families, were to be housed in barracks to keep them separate from those they policed. Gendarmes were not to be local men, but to come from parts of France other than those they policed. They were not accountable to the civilian authorities. Um, image was also very important. They had to be tall, and every effort was made to ensure that height requirements were met to provide an imposing, powerful presence. They had to be properly and elegantly uniformed and well-armed with carbines, which were actually, essentially, breech-loading rifles. Um, Fouché said that he, um had soldiers of both sexes hired at the rate of a thousand or two thousand francs per month and according to their importance and their services um all the state prisons were under the control of fouché as well as the gendarmerie uh he confesses that such an establishment was expensive and swallowed up several millions of the funds um of france so the economy was tanking um but yeah that's basically it then we have the newspaper censorship um basically the consul said that the minister of the general police shall immediately make a report upon all newspapers that are printed all newspapers which shall insert articles opposed to the respect that is due to the social compact aka the government shall be immediately suppressed thereafter um
yeah the citizen report is to see that he is supplied every day with all the papers that come out except the 11 political papers and the citizen report is napoleon's librarian event essentially and he reviews all the stuff that is published in france to ensure that nothing goes against napoleon um yeah oh oh last page okay um here we have a little something about christians and their relation to napoleon um they were asked what duties of the christians toward those who government what are the duties of christians toward those who govern them and what in particular are their duties towards napoleon the first their emperor christians owe um those who govern them love, respect, obedience, fidelity, military service, and the taxes levied for their preservation and defense of the empire and of their, his throne, um, as well as fervent prayers for his safety and the prosperity of the state. Another question is, why are they subject to all these duties toward our emperor? Because God has established Napoleon as their sovereign and made him the agent of God's power and God's image upon earth. Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught um christians what they owe to their sovereign so yeah um they were also asked if there are no special motives which should attach them more closely to napoleon the first um they christians responded and said it is he whom it is napoleon whom god has raised up in trying times to reestablish the public worship of the holy religion of our fathers and to be his protector he has reestablished and preserved public order by his profound and active wisdom and defend the state and become the anointed of the Lord by the consecration which he has received from the sovereign pontiff. Um, and finally, what must we think of those who are wanting in their duties toward our emperor? And they reference the Apostle Paul and say that those people are resisting the order established by God himself and render themselves worthy of eternal damnation. So follow the leader or you're going to hell, basically. All right, that's all for my notes. But I do have one other thing that we did in Canvas today that I want to check up on. Just, just a tad, just a smidgen. But I'll even log in on my phone just to show you. Oh, dear, are you still recording? I hate that. It's really brief, I promise. I'll find it. If the five, if five something, if it will load, please. I'll just need it to load. It's not loading. Oh, boy, why aren't you loading? That is so annoying. Assignments. Please, I need to see. I just see. Basically, we were ranking, um, the five lessons learned by Napoleon in order, and oh, it's loaded. Let's see. Found it. Thank you, Miss Madalena. She said great explanations. Okay, so number one, we me and we as a me and Sarah, we decided that the number one lesson from Napoleon's wars is knowing when to stop. First of all, 
All of the efforts of the French Revolution and Napoleonic rule were essentially reversed following Napoleon's exile. Napoleon would not have been exiled if he had halted waging wars. There were many movements, many moments when France faced peace with other nations, but Napoleon grew power hungry and continued on to attempt to expand French territory further. Such a desire for expansion led to more destruction. I said led wrong. Oopsie, I spelled led wrong. Led to more destruction, and not only did France suffer, but Napoleon's war force began to go down in skill level as well, for he had to keep recruiting new soldiers that were not nearly as skilled. Anyways, number two, we ranked in as never underestimating British finance. We said British, the British remained undefeatable in all wars they waged with Britain. What the fuck? Just a great explanation, but I literally fucked this up. British remained undefeatable in all wars they waged with France. Britain never ran low on wealth or resources during any era of Napoleon's reign that they warred against in France. Napoleon felt like his soldiers could overtake them, but Britain rarely faced economic consequences, and their navy was strong, so they could no so they could go no longer. Additionally, Britain helped fund other nations wage wars against France in other battles, helping diminish the French forces overall. Number three, we said, offer the defeated enemy a generous peace. In achieving a balance of power, there's more chance for alliance and peace among nations and far less war. When one nation severely disadvantages another, there's not much peace made at all. No peace leads to more violence and more disasters across Europe. If Napoleon had actually equally divided spoils and was not nearly as greedy there would not there would have been better relationships between each nation and he may have had a shot at securing his war gains and expanding his empire further little by little fourth we said knowing how to handle russia is one of the is the fourth most important lesson learned by napoleon's wars we said Invasions of Russia were not frequent during Napoleon's wars and happened following corrupt peace treaty agreements, which is why it's ranked after the peace agreement stuff. When faced with in the environment of Russia, however, Napoleon's army faced heavy consequences, little food, freezing cold, extreme loss of life, etc. This was a grand empire and the citizens of Germany had many areas to retreat off to so as to let the French weed themselves out in the nation's harsh conditions. And number five, we said fighting against a weaker enemy in the Middle East is an uphill battle. Yeah, this was important, but they barely talked about the Middle East. Um, while Napoleon had to figure out how to rule over Egypt with a small Frenchman force, these affairs were not extremely significant in comparison to the other lessons learned in Napoleon's wars. There were many revolts and sieges that emerged from the Napoleon's invasions in the Middle East, but eventually Napoleon actually realized that fighting for taking over smaller cities in the Middle East were not nearly as important as other nation invasions. Additionally, armies from the Middle East did not often fight against Napoleon's forces at large, rather they were smaller revolts aimed at the Frenchmen that lay in their mother country. France itself really got direct hits from them. Therefore, it was not nearly as important. Hey, have you graded my French That's basically it. I feel like I might have a little bit more of romanticism things later because we're still covering that um, early next week. But for right now, I have nothing. And you're going to go take a bath and then you're going to study. And yeah, hope you're having a great week. It's almost Christmas time.